Welcome to episode 112 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how you been, my friend? Oh, working myself into a frenzy, but I suppose that's better than the alternative. How about you? Yes. Uh, good Good to be employed. Always a good thing, right? Uh, good, good to you know, be busy beats the alternative. Yes. So. And just before we even get started, you know, we are going to do a mailbag segment. And I just really want to thank our loyal listeners for uh, really coming through this week with a lot of great questions. Um, so many that we have enough for probably a couple great segments uh, for mailbag for this week and maybe even next week, too. Yes, you you guys definitely came through with good stuff this week. Fun questions, lively questions, and of course, for all future questions, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5, or numeral 5, as one questioner wanted me to say, the numeral 5 at THR.com. So yes, anyway, we should get to headlines. Leading off in headlines, The Man Who Fell to Earth is the latest show to jump platforms at Viacom CBS, moving from Paramount Plus to Showtime. An interesting move considering Halo moved from Showtime to Paramount Plus. So it's all part of a strategy to be broad on Paramount Plus and to be a little more niche on Showtime. I'm not sure, but I read the interview uh, as part of the Variety story with David Nevins and didn't really walk away with much clarity on that. So stay tuned. Stop teasing something you're going to talk about more in a future se- segment, Leslie. Jeez. Anyway, in series pickup news and Showtime news, the premium cable network has gone straight to series on the scripted drama Shaka, King of the Zulu Nation, from producer Antoine Fuqua. Elsewhere, Maya Rudolph is reuniting with Forever creators Matt Hubbard and Alan Yang for an untitled Apple comedy. Ryan Johnson has set up his first TV series, a mystery series, Poker Face, starring Natasha Leone at Peacock. And speaking of Peacock, because we do sometimes, the streamer has picked up a suicide drama titled Expiration Date, starring Will Forte. What could go wrong? In other news, Sci-Fi has renewed Resident Alien for a second season. Stars has picked up my mom's favorite show, Outlander, for a seventh. And Drew Barrymore's syndicated daytime talk show will return for its second season. And on the flip side, AMC announced this week that Killing Eve will end in 2022 with its fourth and final season, as the network is already in talks with producers for a potential spinoff, just not starring either of the two leads. And it's only one season too late. I was unable to make through the third season, but I now will plow through knowing that the fourth is the last one. On the casting front, Game of Thrones veteran Lena Headey will star in the sci-fi drama Beacon 23 for AMC and Spectrum Originals. Tom Hiddleston will star alongside Claire Danes in the Apple drama Essex Serpent. Showtime is taking a stab at the vampire drama Let the Right One In with Demian Bashir in Talks to Star. Uh, Vera Farmiga is reuniting with Bates Motel co-creator and former TV's Top 5 uh, guest Carlton Cuse for the Hurricane Katrina drama Five Days at Memorial. And in development news, Showtime is teaming with the Comey Rule producers for a limited series exploring the Capitol riot. Matthew McConaughey is attached to star in a Time to Kill sequel for HBO. And FX and the group behind Justified are prepping another Elmore Leonard show with star Timothy Oliphant in talks to reprise his role. And following up on something that was discussed on the podcast a couple weeks ago with THR's great Bachelor and Bachelorette expert Jackie Strauss, Chris Harrison will not return as the host of the next incarnation of The Bachelorette on ABC. Color me surprised, Dan. It probably was just time, but let's be perfectly honest— 
I have no substantive opinion on this subject or anything Bachelor or Bachelorette related. Though, on the other hand, the woman trying to justify going to her antebellum sorority dance, probably there are thousands upon thousands of sorority girls in the South who have done the same thing in the past, you know, say, 150 years, and it's all kind of sad. Yeah. And in other controversial news, we are monitoring the Sharon Osbourne story to see what comes of that controversy. So... More on that probably next week if there's a decision. Exactly. If anything breaks in the next 12 hours and you get this tomorrow morning and you're like, why did they not cover that? It's because it's in flux and we didn't want to look silly. Well, with all that out of the way, let's get into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, HBO Max has the longest. That's what she said. Launch of the week as it debuts Zack Snyder's Justice League. Joining us to preview what to expect from the four-hour Snyder Cut is THR's Heat Vision editor, Aaron Couch. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Thank you, Leslie. Okay, so first of all, to make this completely clear, you have, you have, I don't want to say the word watched because that seems insufficient. You have experienced the Snyder Cut. You have become one with the Snyder Cut. And your couch. I yes, I have. Um, it took me three days. I know a lot of people watched it starting, you know, midnight Pacific, uh, but I did a, the screener over three days, and um, yeah, I'm I I'm changed. The hype is real. The hype is real. <laughs> when you say the hype is real, you mean in the sense that this thing that people said didn't exist and would never exist exists. That's that's as far as you mean, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it it was one of the strangest things just putting that in and, and realizing, yeah, this is this is an actual thing. Um, but no, I, you know, listen, I think the way I describe it is if you don't like Zack Snyder, this is not going to change your mind. If you love Zack Snyder, you're really going to love this. Um, and I think that also if you, you know, kind of, you know, you might just have an appreciation for getting to see a filmmaker ha- that has a point of view getting to do his thing or her, his or her thing. So, um, you know, listen, I know, Dan, you have thoughts on Rotten Tomatoes, but this is Snyder's best, you know, highest Rotten Tomatoes score, higher than 300 and, and other movies that are kind of well regarded, which is kind of surprising. I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I literally don't know what to say about it because I haven't seen the four hour cut. It could be brilliant. I don't know if I have four hours this weekend to see it. But uh, for for our listeners, let's 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 give a little bit of background on how we got to this point, because, you know, this is this is a big deal, but maybe we haven't discussed it recently, I guess. So. Give us the little background. Yeah. How, how did this happen? How much like would this have happened? Were there not a pandemic and a shortage of, of programming? How much did it, they spend to redo this? <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is that, you know, they received the call. The Snyders received the call in November 2019, pre-pandemic, um, you know, after basically several years of fan campaigning. And it culminated in, in 2019 on the two-year anniversary of the theatrical release. And, uh, you know, that was the day that Ben Affleck, Gal Gadot, Ray Fisher were tweeting, release the Snyder Cut. And it trended worldwide. And, you know, finally the studio called them up the next morning and said, do you want to do this? Um, They said, wow, okay. And they said, and the, the studio said, great, just put your cut on HBO Max as is. And the Snyder said, no, 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 no. It is not ready. They worked with CAA to get analytics about how much people are tweeting about this. They compared those tweets to top Netflix shows and said, give us money. And we, from what we understand, it was about $70 million to finish 
the post-production on this thing. I mean, four hours of effects, because keep in mind, they used none of Whedon's stuff. You know, it was all, whatever was on Zack Snyder's hard drive, then they had to make that good, you know? So basically this is, for our listeners, you know, the fact that fan campaigns can actually be effective to save shows or, or to release four hour cuts of movies that were kind of a commercial myth. Yeah. And I really would like to know, I mean, is this the most expensive movie ever? Because they spent a lot on it. They spent a lot on Whedon's version, you know, even more on top of that. And then they spent $70 million on this thing. So, I mean, uh, I don't know even, I can't even imagine what that adds up to. I wonder what the promotional budget differences are, because obviously you spend a lot more to market something for a theatrical release than you would for streaming. And yet promotional budgets end up being so much. Anyway, I... I don't want to be sarcastic about this because I haven't seen it and I know that lots of people are invested. So I don't want to sound like I'm being such snarky. So talk a bit about what your relationship is with the half Whedon version and talk about from your perspective, how clearly and evidently different this is. Yeah. I mean, I think that I the, you know, the, the two hour cut, I think like many people, it's just the, the Whedon version is just one I saw. It was kind of a, uh, you know, kind of pleasant, but forgettable, you know, you see it and then you never think about it again. You know, it was that sort of movie. Um, this version, like all of Zack Snyder's movies is something you are going to be talking about. You know, um, there's an extended scene where Icelandic women are singing, you know, a two minute song to Aquaman, you know, that's the kind of thing you don't see in a normal movie that might make some people go really. And other people go, this is, Hey, this is, this is great. And for our um, listeners, as Aaron was talking about that scene, Dan put his head in his hands. So um, just so you get a sense of what the reaction is here. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a lot like, you know, I'm the kind of guy that I just want to watch the Lord of the Rings theatrical version, you know, and this is definitely the, um, yeah, the extended edition, which I'm not really going to watch too often. However, I will say, no, so Zack Snyder's Justice League, it's far superior to the the theatrical cut. I mean, this is something where, I could certainly see myself watching different parts of it. And I would say, you know, he he filmed one additional scene for this. It's at the end of the movie. And I think it's one of the best scenes he's ever put to screen. You know, it's uh, it's the the scene that finally unites Jared Leto's Joker with Ben Affleck's Batman. Um, it was shot over three days during the pandemic. And it's um, it, it really tees up what he was going to do with his other Justice League movies and you know, even though he maintains in interviews, you know, we're never going to get to see these movies. I, I have a feeling that he would love it if the Zack Snyder army, you know, restore the Snyderverse. That's the new hashtag. I think he would love to see that take on, become a movement. And maybe, maybe there will be another upcry. I mean, I, nothing is impossible at this point because I think seeing the Snyder cut was so impossible. So who's to say he can't figure something out? Um, who's to say Ben Affleck might say, hey, I can do this movie for streaming and people won't, you know, there won't be a box office bomb. There's no pressure. I mean, because streaming doesn't really leave a stink, right? Like, I mean, think about all the terrible Netflix movies that Will Smith has done or whoever has done, and it doesn't matter. So Yeah, no one no one balks at a bad Rotten Tomatoes score the way that they balk at a, at a box office financial bomb. So, Right, exactly. Okay, so when this was initially announced... It was initially announced as a miniseries or as a limited series. And my understanding is that this does play with kind of four semi-autonomous structural 
blocks. How how does that work? How does it feel? Does it feel like a movie or or does it feel like a four hour miniseries? Yeah, it, it definitely feels like a movie. You know, I mean, I think that there was there were talks of um, yeah being kind of a TV show, and, and Snyder has said once the lawyers started talking about oh we have to then work out deals with the actors for different episodes. You know what? It's not worth it. Just make it a movie. Um, I don't think it would have worked as a TV show. The way it is, it's divided up into different chapters. But those chapters, to me, did not at all feel like they had the the hook and the you know the cliffhanger and sort of thing that you want from you know a, a Marvel TV show, for instance, or something. So, yeah, and I think the timing of the of the release this weekend it, it's a very DC versus Marvel weekend because you've got Falcon and Winter Soldier coming out on on Disney Plus, right? Big big shoes to fill after the great success of WandaVision, at least critically. Um, but how is it shaping up for you? Like, you know, you, you have your, your finger on the, on the pulse of the fanboy audience as the editor of, of Heat Vision, but what kind of, where do you, where do you see the chips falling? Like who's going to win the battle of, of the, the weekend streamers where no one will have ratings to compare and say, we won, but where do you think it is? Which way is the wind blowing DC or Marvel, Aaron? Well, it's funny you ask this because, uh, when Justice League came out, it was Marvel versus DC because it was. Justice League and Thor Ragnarok coming out two weeks apart. Thor, you know, second-rate character, totally destroyed it. It was one of the best, you know, Marvel movies, made a lot of money, and Justice League totally tanked, you know. So it's kind of a rematch. Um, I think this time certainly Buzz has to go to the Snyder Cut, right? There's no, there's just nothing that can compare to that. But at the same time, I mean, who, you know, people like, my wife and other people that don't really care about Marvel are like, you know what? I liked WandaVision. I want to check this out. So, you know, the, the, the Snyder diehards are going to be watching the Snyder cut. I mean, uh, a lot of people in my life will not be watching it, but they might be watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier, you know? So I don't, it's hard to say, right? What, what do you guys think? Something tells me that, that uh, I would be friends with your wife. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so, okay, you've you've kind of you've met well, not even kind of you've totally mentioned that this puts a lot of irons into the fire for a hypothetical. I believe he said it was like a five movie cycle that he envisioned on this. Um, is is it frustrating? I, I mean, like, does it get to a point where you get to the end and you're like, okay, this was a fun experiment, but I've now been promised these other movies that might not exist? And do you think that's probably to some degree intentional, having seen the way that audiences made this happen? Because, you know, audiences made this happen. The fans made this happen. And it is a, it is a remarkable thing that they were able to do that. I, I cannot take anything away from the fans and their passion and how that made this. <laughs> yeah, I think <clears throat> I think that, you know, there there are two more movies planned and he's kind of spilled the beans on what would happen, you know. I mean, I think it I don't know if we need a spoiler warning for what he has said, but he's like, you know, Batman was going to die at the very end of his last movie, you know. He he's already laid it out so that that makes me wonder, you know, uh if if that's still a possibility if he did get the green light, but um yeah, I I think, you know, I, to me the, the fact of seeing Batman and Joker together in this world, getting to see Jared Leto actually be, you know, a good, quite a, a very good Joker, uh, that, that was a, a gift enough. I, I'm not too upset that I'm not going to get to see more, you know, I'd like to. I mean, speaking of that, uh, Ray Fisher is really good in this movie. And that, it did make me sad. Um, just, and I'm just talking about on, on screen, it made me sad 
man, we could have had more Ray Fisher actually in this role. He could have had a solo movie uh, aside from all the stuff he went through. He, just just from a fan perspective, that would have been cool to see, you know. So that that stuff like that did make me sad that we're not going to continue on. So he actually he actually does have a character in this version because that was definitely a conspicuous thing about the theatrical cut is there was just nothing there for him. Yeah, he, I mean, he he and his uh, on-screen father, uh, Terminator 2's Joe Morton, are probably the best part of this movie. I think Joe Morton gave the best performance of anybody in this movie, which you would not have guessed from the theatrical cut. You know, well, good that good that they got to do this. Good that they got to do this. Then in that case, well, thank you so much for for piquing our interest further in the four-hour experience that is Zack Snyder's Justice League. I look forward to both of your reviews on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Number two. Up next, mailbag. As we teased, y'all came through with a bunch of really, really good questions. And if we need a, a mailbag segment next week, uh, let me tell you, we got good questions for it. So much appreciated. Thank you again. And let's get down to business. We had multiple people, both Al and Mandy, ask some variation on this question for Leslie. Leslie, what is going on at Grey's Anatomy and ABC regarding the possibility of this being a final season? It seems so rushed, if that were the case. Uh, well, a lot. there's been a lot of speculation that season 17, the current season, would be the last for Grey's Anatomy. And I think it started because, well, Ellen Pompeo's contract is up. You know, she signed a, a massive deal that makes her primetime television's highest paid actress on a on a drama series north of 20 million a year um, a couple seasons ago. And that two two year renewal expired ahead of this season. And they've been. They, being Pompeo and Disney, have been negotiating a new contract for, for months since before the season started. And here we are, you know, production is heading into the back half and the home stretch of the season. I spoke with showrunner Krista Vernoff last week ahead of the midseason return, and she said that she was approaching the season 17 finale as both a season finale and a series finale. That's not the first time Grey's Anatomy has had to do that, but it's certainly the first time in a few years, in a long time, that, that that's been the case. It's certainly the first time under Vernoff's regime that I can recall. So where are we? They're, not, they're still negotiating. Um, what I've been hearing from sources is that there are a couple scenarios on the table. One is a one-season renewal, and the other is a two-season renewal. Um, in both scenarios, Ellen Pompeo will get a salary increase and that's a lot of money for, you know, a company at Disney that is making billions of dollars off of Grey's Anatomy. But it's also a lot of money for the company that has lost billions of dollars amid the pandemic with theme park closures and no box office, et cetera. So either way, I don't think that this is going to be the last season of Grey's Anatomy. But a lot of people, when you look at what's happening on screen, it definitely feels that way. You've got Patrick Dempsey coming back as Derek, you know, uh, Meredith's husband on screen. They just uh, brought back T.R. Knight a couple of episodes ago. And it's this basically this exploration of COVID, you know, which you can go back and listen to our interview uh, from episode 80 in July, the end of July with Chris, Grey's Anatomy showrunner Krista Vernoff. And she said that they that she considered not writing COVID into the season and then spoke with the writers. And then it became, there was no way that they couldn't write the biggest medical story of our lifetime into a medical drama. So they're leading hard. And I interviewed the Grey's Anatomy medical expert and she basically said COVID is number one on the call sheet. And it certainly is. As we're recording this, you know, look, there's a new episode that's airing in a few hours, but 
Pompeo's Meredith is still laid up in, in you know, on a resp- on a, on a vent with COVID. You've had other doctors contract it. You've, you know, it, it, it's a completely different show. And you've got you know, on the flip side of, of the seriousness and the heavy nature of what the pandemic has done to these doctors, you've got this beach, which is like this dreamlike sequence that Vernoff created as a way to kind of counter the heavy storylines. And it, you've brought back some char- some beloved characters. Vernoff says that there are other people we've not seen uh, on that beach still to come. That uh, So yeah, it, it does feel like there's a final thing. There was a big shocking death last week. I'm not going to spoil it here for our listeners who haven't gotten to it yet. But it was the first time in, I think, five, since Patrick Dempsey's character was killed off like five years ago, that they've killed off a character. And the actor who was killed off this year is only the fifth actor in the entire show's history to leave the show via character death. Everyone else has been written off, but very, very few have been killed off. When you're looking at complete the, the complete list of series regulars, which, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's just, but like 300 plus episodes and you've only had five series regulars be killed off. That's a pretty surprising to me anyway. So yeah, in short, Grey's isn't going anywhere. <laughs> Next up, Tasif asks, ESPN recently laid off many employees. NBC Sports is shutting down at the end of the year. They're worried that live sports will be less accessible to the average American fan. And the bigger question as part of this email is, is there a shift to digital for for basic sports rights? And should people who haven't cut the cord yet be worried? I think in answer to that question, there's some answer in the news that broke Today, basically. So this so today, the uh, NFL announced that it reached new carriage agreements with basically every company that exists. So that means Walt Disney Corporation. That means NBC Universal. It means Fox Corps. It means Viacom CBS and the relatively new player in this space, Amazon. And so a lot of this is the same. You still have CBS and Fox with their Sunday afternoon games, and NBC will still have Sunday night football, and ESPN is still having Monday night football. But there are some big changes here. Uh, You know, sort of because it's the biggest thing in the world, the biggest change is that ABC has been added to the, the Super Bowl rotation. And ABC had not been in the Super Bowl rotation since 2006, which you'll also remember as the year Grey's Anatomy blew people up with a bomb. Uh, and so, yeah, that is that's that is a massive thing, getting ABC back into a rotation that they had been out of for a few years. But the other massive part of it is that Thursday Night Football is now not going to have a broadcast network home. It is going to be shared between Amazon and the NFL network. And Amazon, which had a partial deal on the Thursday games previously has been wanting to get into this and has been wanting to have exclusivity. And so this goes to what the question has been asking, you know, are things heading in that direction? Are they heading in a direction where some things are not going to be available to you if all you have is, I don't know, no one has just broadcast these days, I don't think. But if you, but if you're looking for sports to be available to as many people as possible, this is not going to be that answer. You have to have either the NFL Network, which is a premium option, or you have to be a, an Amazon Prime subscriber. And I think that you're going to see more of this. I mean, look at Paramount Plus when they had their rollout. Sure, they were talking about all of the obscure 70s and 80s movies that they were going to be remaking as TV series, and there was some head-scratching on that. And sure, they were talking about SpongeBob and Dora and all of that. But really and truly for them, 
the major selling point that they were going with was live stuff. They were going with news and they were going with live sports and they were listing all of the sports that you were going to have to subscribe to Paramount Plus in some form or another, either the low tier or the upper tier to get access to. And, you know, I don't think obviously that it's going to suddenly overnight be that you can't watch your favorite NFL teams on Sunday, but there is no question that all the streamers, because as we tell you on a weekly basis, streaming is where the future is. All the streamers are trying to have this programming as a potential piece of leverage, as a potential buy-in that will get people in the door. And so, and so, yeah, I think I think you're going to see more and more of it. We, you know, obviously that is not a thing that Netflix has done yet, for example. And they've always been asked about it at events. Are you going to get into this? And the answer has always been not yet. And that's what the answer is until the minute in which they get into it. And then who knows? Uh, you know, there was there was some question if ESPN was going to drop out of the NFL rotation at all this this cycle, if, if ESPN was going to try to adjust its resources to other things. And given how much of ESPN's audience is NFL tied in some way, that was going to be a, a very, very, very big deal. Instead, they're not. But you look at basically the people with the money are the people who want a piece of the NFL. And that's just... That's that's where we are. And but it's the same with every sport. You know, you might or might not have heard Leslie mention a couple times that there was that long stretch where she couldn't watch Dodgers games. Yeah, and- most of Los <laughs> Angeles couldn't watch the Dodgers on television because there was a, an exclusive deal. It was something like was it like a 25 year deal with Spectrum to carry the Dodgers on Sportsnet LA and on, and on an exclusive Dodgers network that you could only get if you subscribe to Spectrum Cable. And and you look at the Yankees and the Yes Network. I mean, that is that is where the money is. That is what they have built the brand around. And not every franchise can do that. Not every city can sustain that kind of thing. But it is an approach that everyone who has the ability to do it is going to be taking to some greater or lesser degree. It's, uh, it, you know, it, it, like everything else, it's it's additional fragmenting of a landscape an additional fragmenting of a landscape that is not directed at consumer convenience because almost nothing that happens in this landscape is based on life becoming easier for you or cheaper for you. That's just not the phase we're at in any of this. And so, yeah, it's it's definitely changing. I don't think it's changing overnight, obviously. And so I, I don't think there's a, there's a worry that you know, as as Tosif asked, that suddenly tomorrow you won't be able to watch sports, but it's going to be harder for you to watch some things that you like to watch because you're going to have to have everything if you want to watch everything. Yeah. And that's what's the easiest way to get you to subscribe to a service is to carry something that you have exclusively, whether it's streaming rights to the office or friends or the NFL or wrestling or the Dodgers network. You know, I've never been a Spectrum subscriber when my wife and I moved last year, guess what cable operator we got? We got Spectrum because I was sick of trying to, I was sick of stealing games via Reddit and, and buffering and getting spoiled with my MLB app alerts on who gets a home run two minutes before I see it. So yeah, exclusivity is always the ticket.
That's a good question. Our next question comes from Garrett, and this leads back to something that Leslie was discussing earlier in the podcast. As Paramount Plus launches, I wonder where that leaves Viacom, CBS's other franchises, uh, Showtime, Pluto, and BT. When Leslie brought up The Kings and The Good Fight last week, I agreed the programming they're pushing right now seems to compete a lot more with Peacock than with the big prestige players. Uh, but CBS All Access um, and now Paramount Plus had a lot of prestige shows. Will they eventually live in a separate umbrella under Paramount Plus? To me, it seems like the good fight at least probably should be moved to Showtime for season five. But to be honest, if Viacom wants to compete with Warner Brothers and Disney, they should all move and live under one service. And he's curious if that's the plan. And this week we got some insight into exactly how fuzzy and somewhat confusing these lines are becoming. <laughs> Yeah, there was a, a great story by my friend and mentor, Cynthia Littleton, on Variety about the man who fell to Earth, as we mentioned in headlines, moving from Paramount Plus to Showtime, which is, to me, it's like one of the first times that we've really seen, a, you know, a big tentpole show move from a streamer to linear, uh, especially premium. And in that story, it was an interview with uh, one of the content czars at Viacom CBS, David Nevins, who's been overseeing Showtime for the last couple of years. And... You know, I, I read that a couple of times and, and, you know, there's some great feedback around the interview uh, on, on Twitter that basically says, if you're confused about what's on which platform and why, don't worry, because so are the execs. It, it remains a little fuzzy. And as for the question of if, they're, you know, Viacom CBS is going to bundle all of its various streaming platforms, I have no idea. It is so confusing to keep up with what's available on which platform, what's free, what you can pay for, what comes with what price. It, it It's... It's nuts. I mean, and it's all happening at each one of these different portfolios. And some are doing it a lot better. You know, some are doing it a little bit better than others. You know, Dan and I talked a lot about the Super Bowl ads. When you look at the one for Disney Plus, which had Hulu, ESPN Plus, and Disney Plus all in one roof and, and was it had a clear messaging, super. And then you go over to, to the Paramount Plus ad and it was like a mountain of entertainment with a bunch of people standing around on a cliff that you most people wouldn't recognize and half of them I didn't and I cover this for you know as for a living so it, it's very confusing what's going on over there and as for you know the good fight you know there was you know for a long time everyone was like you know the original series aired on CBS it was not one of the, the highest rated shows on the network it didn't do very well for them because that's a network that has trained its audience to expect big broad procedurals and here was kind of this art house critical darling that wasn't so that's probably why they put it on the streamer. They wanted to bring, you know, a crown jewel and say, we're going to make critical things over here. But yeah, there's, you know, it, it, it's it's very confusing. I, I get why Halo is going to move to Paramount Plus. That is a big, broad potential hit, probably far more expensive than anything Showtime had done before. And the man who fell to earth is probably a little a little less so. Um, then again, Halo is it's a, a video game audience that's already digital. That if you remember that show, I think it's been in development now something like six years. It was supposed to debut on Xbox as as the, as the console was going to be doing originals, and obviously that's not the case now. But it, it's it's very the Viacom CBS streaming strategy is is continuing to evolve, and I think getting out of the gate and rebranding CBS All Access at and offering this, you know, the mountain of entertainment, go ahead and take a shot now for, for those of you following that game, but getting that rebranding and, and saying, we're going to be a one-stop shop for everything that you have from our, from within our portfolio is great, but it's also 
to me, it's like, just put everything up there. You want free? Here's, here's our free thing. Here's, don't call it something, you know, it's like, yes, they bought, they bought Pluto. It wasn't like that. They sit that sat there and said, we're going to name this service Pluto and make it confusing for all of our subscribers. Right. But yeah, BET plus is also has obviously a brand recognition and value there. Tyler Perry is an investor in that. So that gets confusing with if you're going to bundle and who gets what money and whatever. So yeah, I think it's an evolving strategy and, I think it's something that will continue to that we will continue to see them evolve as things continue to come in and as they kind of get their you know, the new executives kind of get their feet beneath them and see what the, the lessons that they can take away from the Paramount Plus audience once they get to measure who's doing what and once they actually release some of the originals that they've greenlit for specifically for Paramount Plus. So and, and super even- confusing. And even after a while, I don't think there's going to be a clear and clean differentiation. I mean, look at, you know, look at the FX, Hulu, FX on Hulu, all of that. That is still plenty confusing to me. And it's still confusing to me what things are premiering on FX on the network and what things are FX on Hulu and whether anyone at all recognizes or understands the difference. Uh, you know, I've, I've said this many times. You hear all the talk about the the Britney Spears episode of the New York Times FX show that premiered last month, and the number of articles I saw just referring to it as a Hulu show was high because it's impossible for people to distinguish to some degree, even sometimes media reporters. And so, yeah, it's this is not going to this is not a clear thing to us. Uh, reading that David Nevins article, it's not a clear thing to him. And I don't blame and him for that. And he's the one selling it. Exactly. I don't, but I don't blame him. Like I read that interview and my response was, I don't really have a clue what you're saying. I'm not a hundred percent sure you do, but I know that that's where you are at this moment in what your mindset is. And so that's, that's all anyone is doing is, is trying to figure it out. And there's no answer that's going to be the same as what the answer turns out to be 12 months from now. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Number three. Up third, Dan, it's hard to believe we've been recording TV's top five remotely for a year now. I went back and looked and our first remote remote episode was March 20th, episode 62, when the first three topics examined the impact of the pandemic on production, streaming and late night. And then the episode, the episode before that, We were looking forward to Westworld season three and exploring why pop bailed on originals and had our last in-person interview with the always great Pamela Adlon. So what's this segment? This segment is kind of a where we are now look at a year later, because that's where we are. It's a year later. Hard to hard to believe and hard to believe we never talked again about what was what the impact of pandemic was on production. So, you know, glad we got that out of our system then. Uh, No, this is. This has been the biggest story of our lifetimes. <laughs> there's there's no other way to to put it. The world has the world has shut down and the world has been impacted in ways that aren't done being impacted and people have been impacted and we're all someday going to have to figure out how to be back in a room again together with each other and it's all going to be strange. And so, yeah, where do you where do you want to start because we also have a couple good mailbag questions that perfectly dovetailed into this topic. So this is going to be half mailbag and half us talking a little. So where do you want I mean, to start? Well, there's not a whole lot of new information here. So, you know, look, we've we've talked a lot about the February and March doldrums that have been a result of the delay of production. 
And now you've got a lot of these shows are back up and running. A lot of stuff that has worked out the scheduling thing. We've seen the stars who have dropped out and the directors who have dropped out and the showrunners who have changed because their schedules were in flux and things were in first position and hiatuses were evaporated, et cetera. Now you've got baseball is starting up in a few weeks and you've got fans confirmed to be in, in attendance at all 30 big league parks. All the conglomerates, have, as we've talked on, you know, about the executive carousel, all these big companies have shifted the focus to streaming and rearranged their executive suites to do so. And then you've got the WGA battle with all the agencies that finally ended. And I, I don't think it was how anyone could have expected it. So, I mean, I think picking up where we left off with mailbag, you, let's look into some some of the great pandemic related questions that we got. So leading off, friend of the five, Gene Bentley asks, what show do we think will emerge as the best example of a pandemic success story? Not shows that specifically tackle the pandemic, though I will say I'm very, continue to be very impressed with the way Grey's Anatomy is doing it. But Gene is asking the ones that got people watching and talking about them during the pandemic. And her answer is Ted Lasso. And, and, and Dan, that's mine too. And she says Ted Lasso and emphasizes that its legacy will live longer than Tiger King uh, because it was the show that made us feel better. And I think I'm still going to point to Tiger King because of exactly the opposite reason of the, of the ridiculousness of that particular moment. And I think it's the same thing as looking back at the much lampooned deservedly. So celebrity imagine video that came out pretty much right at the beginning of the quarantine that was already this, oh my God, we're going stir crazy and going crazy moment. Um, you look at Ted Lasso and I am naive enough because I have to be in my job to believe that people will find good TV shows. And so my opinion on something like a Ted Lasso or a Queen's Gambit is that those shows are examples of shows that under any circumstances could have been word of mouth shows because they happen to be good. Now, do I think the pandemic had an impact in the word of mouth and people watching them? Oh, God, of course, yes. I mean, no question. Uh, the The optimism of Ted Lasso struck a chord in a moment because the moment was shit. And bless it for that. Uh, to my mind, Ted Lasso being a show I like very much, but maybe don't love quite as much as some people do. You know, there, there are many sort of stratifications. I think it's a I think it's a really, really good show, but I think it's a it's it's been a show that has been valuable to people. So I understand that. I, I can speak to that. I don't sure. mean to interrupt you, Dan, but no. You know, look, I, I've been you know struggling with depression in the last year and, and you know feeling triggered by things we've seen politically and state of the world and not being able to hug my seventy six year old mother. You know, and, you know, when Ted Lasso, I remember we had booked Bill Lawrence for the podcast last year and and I went to watch the screeners and I'm like, oh, I'm not going to enjoy a show about soccer. I don't care about soccer, you know, and I wound up binging the entire season in one you know, in one sitting in one day and it pulled me out. And I know it's done that for other people. Um, you know, my wife and I watched it together over the holidays because she missed it when it was on originally. And it kind of did the same thing for her. You know, it, it, it to me, it's it was a. a perfect balm for the dumpster fire that was 2020. Um, and to that note too, you know, I kind of felt, I really loved Palm Springs, not a movie, but, it, you know, launched on Hulu. Um, that hit home in a way I didn't really expect it to. And um, probably one of my other uh, sleeper hits from last year was We Are Who We Are on HBO, which to me was just a, a great 
exploration of of youth and and you know for me everything kind of felt like you know it made me feel a little bit less alone and that there are people who are struggling with a lot of the same things that I'm struggling with no matter what age you are so you know that and the soundtrack was amazing so those were my 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 the ones that, that really helped me get through the year and then and, um I don't think it was a sleeper hit and it definitely wasn't like a tonal match the way that Ted Lasso was but I thought P Valley really was a one of the most original shows that I've seen last year. And I'm very excited for season two. And I loved our interview last year with Katori Hall. But those were some of just some of my favorites that that really that I discovered that I probably wouldn't have made time to watch or check out had it had I not been stuck at home. I mean, I can't, you know, I can't dispute and argue with any of that. I think it just might be a a sort of perspective that 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 I really do want to believe that good things find an audience in some way or another, whereas the oddity of Tiger King is a very, very specific quarantine shut-in oddity, that it arrived at a moment at which people were surprised and perplexed to be locked in their homes, but also still had reason to believe that it was only going to be a couple weeks or a couple months if they were somewhat naive on the subject. And so... People finding a good show, I always find reassuring. People finding and latching on to a not particularly good show, that I sort of find a phenomenon in a different kind of way. And and that I find interesting. And I say this as someone whose review of, of Tiger King is, is rated, I believe, as a positive review on both Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic, despite it being trash. But it, I identified it as being fun trash and compulsively watchable trash. But do I think that Ted Lasso and Queen's Gambit might have found under any circumstance an audience if the world was normal? Yes. Do I think that we would still be talking and making jokes about Tiger King a year later if that had just come out in a normal life cycle? No, I really don't. I, I think I think that that is a show that probably some people would have discovered, but it would have vanished probably related to its quality. Whereas... And now you've got scripted takes in the works. You've got the one with Kate McKinnon coming in 2022. That'll air on NBC and USA and, and some of the other, and Peacock. And then there's at least a, one other with Nicolas Cage. I think it's, is it maybe at Amazon? I can't remember. And then who knows how many documentaries or docuseries that, that are in the works that are exploring that same area. Exactly. And I think that the, to, uh, to use a tiger word, I think the tail on that show would have been significantly less I would have said it even if it even if it was Ted Lasso. I would have said it. It, it just happens. The tigers have tails. No, I, I just think that it would the, that people would have stopped talking about it. It would have had it would have had a weekend where some people discovered it and some people told people it's crazy and whatever. It would not have been a global topic of conversation under any other circumstance, and that to me is what makes it phenomenologically the thing that I point to as, my God, this was such a strange year. That's the thing I would point to as how it's been such a strange year. Whereas Ted Lasso, it's just a good show that made people feel good when they needed to. And there's, and I say just, if it were that easy, there would be dozens of those shows. There are not. So it is special because it is a show that makes people feel good. But it, that doesn't seem weird to me. That's the desire to feel better about ourselves feels normal to me, whereas the desire to talk about Tiger King for six months feels weird. Yeah, which that kind of dovetails right into our next question. You know, Jerome emails and says, "How he asks, how have our appetites for certain kinds of shows changed in the last twelve months?" And 
are we more likely to engage with lighter shows now that the world seems so heavy and and less likely to watch cop shows or and dan this is probably for you you've talked about the show before but even something like mr mayor given the premise mr mayor made me as i say all the time it made me laugh once or twice per week it, it was not a good show but it was a show that absolutely managed to make me laugh exactly enough and do i think that my standard for what counts as exactly enough has been changed over the last few months yeah for sure and having the ability to watch some happy fun shows has been more important i've definitely talked multiple times about the the food shows that particularly in the first three or four or five months of pandemic that i was uh binging at a far greater rate than I might have otherwise. So things like the most recent season of Top Chef, I needed that season. Things like uh, Somebody Feed Phil on Netflix and Ugly Delicious on Netflix and the Padma Lachmi show on Hulu. I needed all of those shows. Also, I am not someone who usually has the time to catch up on shows that I missed, but the two-month binge I did of Letterkenny on Hulu was one of my most pleasant times of this pandemic because I had the ability to take 22 minutes and to laugh without taking notes, without feeling awful about anything. And I had a lot of episodes to go through. Yeah, that's very similar to what we did, you know, where we finally watched Shit's Creek. And that was a show that everyone, and, you know, I think we've talked about it on here, you know, everyone was saying, you have to watch it. You have to watch it. It's so good. It's so cute. And when you look at the volume, you know, it was like five or six seasons, we were just never going to get to it you know, to that, to something like that, you know, if it weren't, if we weren't stuck at home and we watch, we've been to the whole thing over the holidays. Um, and that was a show that I probably wouldn't have watched otherwise, um, no matter how much the, you know, the buzz was around it. But, um, yeah, I, I, I personally find myself having a hard time watching anything that that's, that's violent. Um, I stopped watching the walking dead, which was a show that I really, really loved for a long time because it was an exploration of humanity. Um, I'm not a horror fan by any means, but I thought the effects and Greg Nicotero does amazing work on that show. But that was a show to me about humanity and I couldn't watch that anymore. And yeah, I, you know, I'm the supportive wife. I watch Batwoman every week with, with my wife, but you know, there's some violence on there that I've, I find hard to watch. And, you know, I usually uh, opt for an episode of Friends or Brooklyn Nine-Nine as a reset. And, you know, those are shows that, that we watch all the time now because that's kind of our reset and what we do before we go to sleep. You know, we watch a half, half hour episode of comedy, something that, that's not loud. There's no explosions. There's no violence, you know, and it's, you know, it, it leaves you feeling, you know, it gives you the warm and fuzzies or it makes you laugh, you know, no matter how many times you've seen, you know, Mrs. Chenandler bong or, or, you know, or the same jokes because it's just, it's comfort food, you know, to use your, your food show more metaphor, but yeah, I can't watch anything that's violent anymore. And I don't feel like I've necessarily, I mean, I, I also have stopped watching Walking Dead and I, I can't distinguish honestly on, on that one, at least between whether I stopped watching it because they ran out of characters I cared about or whether I stopped watching because it just, the mood was never right. Um, it, uh, one of our listeners, Joy, asked about ratings this year and mentioned that uh, she's been watching This Is Us on delay because for some reason in this particular moment, the desire to have a TV show that makes you cry isn't quite as cathartic as maybe it was a couple of years ago. And I, I mean, I think that's yeah, and she even admitted she hasn't watched it yet in 2021. And here we are, you know, inching toward the end of March. And I, and I think that's true. I, I, I you know, the, <laughs> the desire to cry as catharsis feels much less 
of an imperative when the world is just making you cry because the world is making you cry. You know, the, the thing about This Is Us is it it allowed people to express emotions that maybe they weren't feeling otherwise, whereas the catastrophe of the world has kind of forced that on yeah. us and we but don't this even is look us for is also, But This Is Us is also designed to leave you with a note that's crying. Like, it's it's designed that way to have you in tears by the end. That's the entire motivation of that show is, yes, it's a family drama, and good God, the Pearsons have been through some shit. But every episode is going to leave you intentionally feeling shitty, <laughs> feeling emotional. You know, and that's, say, for some, me, sometimes. Parenthood, you know, gave me gave me the warm and fuzzies, and it did have you know its its share of of sad moments, like and and like every family does. But it also was a little bit less manipulative than a show like This Is Us. No, when I've when I've referred to when I've written about all of the various This Is Us imitators that have aired in the past few years, I've used the phrase weaponized lacrimosity. And and I think that is a thing that a lot of shows have done that isn't exactly what This Is Us does when it's at its best. But you know, This Is Us does continue to push every button relentlessly, and I'm still watching it every week. But Sometimes it's more draining because for whatever reason, I guess my psychic resources aren't as aren't as full. You know, if, if my gas if my gas tank isn't full and I'm already running on empty, there's less pleasure to that as an experience than under other circumstances. So it's it's tough. Cause I I definitely think in terms of tear jerking, the episodes they've done recently have been very, very effective. Tear jerkers just they leave me feeling depleted as opposed to, I don't know, purged in some positive way. But Yeah, but then again, I watched It's a Sin and, and cried more from from watching that, that TV show than I have for any other piece of art in a long time. I, it was beautiful and moving and affecting and, you know, but I also didn't feel like – I, I went into it knowing that it's a drama about – HIV and AIDS. So you kind of know what you're going, what you're signing up for when you sign up for that. So, um, but at the same time, it just, it didn't feel like it was intentionally manipulative. And to, you know, to your, what you've said on the show and your review, Dan, it was more uplifting than you would have expected something like that to be. And, and it, it really does, you know, it, to me, it was, a, it was a great five episode experience because you, you feel this range of emotions, but you're also coming away from seeing an experience that you may not have lived through, you may not have seen it through a, a certain uh, sector of a community's eyes. And, you know, that to me, I, that's, you know, I think you said that's the best show of the year so far. I, it's certainly my favorite show of the year because it, it, for all the things that I just said, it was a beautiful piece of art that made you think and feel and, and learn. And it's everything, that's everything that I want in art. So anyway, I'm just rambling at this point. Just go watch It's a Sin um, and go watch We Are Who We Are and go watch Ted Lasso and go check out P-Valley for something entirely different and fresh. And and why, yeah, are you, and, and why would you be watching Tiger King now? So don't bother. No. <laughs> yeah, there's like 18 scripted things that are coming. You can watch it next year with Kate McKinnon. Well, with all that said, it's t- next up, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Our guest this week is Susan Laurie Parks, the playwright behind Top Dog Underdog. She was the first black woman to win a Pulitzer Prize for drama. She also was a finalist a couple years later, and she won a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. Uh, she is the screenwriter behind Hulu's current The United States versus Billie Holiday, and she's joining us this week to discuss the third season of National Geographic's Genius Anthology focused on Aretha Franklin. Welcome to the podcast, Susan Laurie. Hey, Daniel. Happy to be here. So, okay, National Geographic initially announced that Mary Shelley was going to be the third genius season, but when they 
but when they changed gears, you were already attached with uh, with Aretha. So I'm I'm sort of curious what the conversations were like behind the scenes that brought you, Genius and Aretha together. Right. It's it was great. It was in January 2019. I have to look because it was such a long time ago. Um, January 2019. And I was uh, at Sundance, the Sundance Film Festival, opening the festival with Native Son, which I had written the, the screenplay adaptation to, directed by uh, Rashid Johnson, and got a phone call from Brian Grazer. And Brian likes to FaceTime, you know, so he would be like, he was like on FaceTime, you know, driving somewhere. No, he wasn't driving anywhere, but he was on FaceTime. And um, he said, Hey, we're doing Genius Aretha. Do you want to be the showrunner? You know, like that. And I'm saying it like that because, you know, Brian's like electric. He's like a live wire, you know. And I was like, He Whoa. is a personality, right? for sure. He is a personality, right? Um, a wonderful personality. And I said, whoa, I, whoa I, can, can, I, can I think about it for a second? Because my first thought was, number one, wow, Genius Aretha Franklin, right? What could be better than including... Aretha Franklin in the genius, at the genius table, so to speak, right? My second thought is, I got to do a lot of research because I know her music, you know, but I don't know her story. Um, years before that, Aretha Franklin herself had contacted me on the phone, just on the phone, um, because she wanted me to uh, write her uh, a stage version, a stage musical of her life story. And I had done minimal, you know, it was just a high, high conversation, you know, um, never went further than that. Um, she has so many wonderful projects in the fire and um, we never really got together about it. But now I was like, wow, now I get to take a deep dive into Aretha Franklin's life. And so I was like, called him right back. I was like, yes, I'm on. <laughs> so. First, first of all, what is the before going on with this? What is the experience like of getting on the phone with Aretha Franklin? Yeah, right. Seriously, I, 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 I know, get. I know, I know. And you know, this is an this is a, a, a audio thing. I had earphones on, like I do now, and it was so great because the her sound, you know, it it was a an in one ear and not out the other kind of experience. So I still have her voice in my head in a very intimate way. Uh, I mean, uh, everyone knows she has a beautiful singing voice. She has a beautiful speaking voice, and she loves to make jokes as well. So we had a really rich, lovely, fun conversation. Um, lots of exciting plans, you know. But I have her voice in my head, and I was, I was sitting down <laughs> talking with her. Um, uh, yeah, it was, it was, you know, to speak with the queen, yeah, it was pretty great. So talking about genius, the the first two seasons stuck to a very specific definition of what genius means, a, sort of a very masculine version, very European, very philandering and flawed. Did you go back and look at those two seasons at all when you were considering how you wanted to articulate this genius and how this genius was in contrast to Picasso and Einstein? You know, Daniel, I did. I did go back um and look at them. I, I mean, I'd seen Einstein, you know, I watched Einstein when it was, when it was first presented on the air. Um, but I went back and, and very mindfully watched them just to see how the genius organization built story, you know, um, and realized very quickly that 
Um, I, I mean, and again, as I was researching Aretha Franklin's life, going through bookshelves full of you know, books, magazines, articles, photographs, re-immersing myself in her music, all this tons of research. I was also looking at these Picasso and Einstein, but realizing that the, you know, we call them in writing, you know, story beats, you know, the plot points um, were going to be different because of the circumstances of her life. And you could say because of the specifics of her genius, which while it very much adhered to those things we all consider genius, it was paradigm. Her genius is also paradigm shifting. You know, uh, the way singers sing uh, after Aretha, you know, the way singers listen and learn from her voice and sing pop music is forever different uh, because she contributed so beautifully uh, to uh, song. Um, also, that she uh, created a, a, she gave us a gift that is, that will last long after her passing. And so those two things, yes. Um, uh, but the specifics of her life were going to be different. Um, uh, I, I saw that very clearly. Um, the, the mask, I mean, just the masculine, white, European thing was, we were changing up that game. Um, cool. So anyway, but I'm all those all those specifics, um, and it gave us an opportunity to help uh, the viewer and the world, in the whole world, sort of see genius in in a, a new light. Not throw out the old, but invite a new perspective of genius to the table. I was very excited about that. How, how do you define in your mind the difference between sort of manifestly and transcendently talented and genius? Because I because I feel like there there are sort of all sorts of levels of talent that don't necessarily rise to genius, and then there's genius. Mm-hmm. I think I think genius would be paradigm shifting. I think that's I think that's uh, something that is is I mean uh, we think of like yeah you know, Einstein wasn't just a I uh, wasn't just a theoretical physicist. I think that's you know, but he really changed the way that we that we. Um, look at the world, look at ourselves, and look at scientists also, you know? And I think, uh, just jumping to Aretha, that she, her contribution to music did similar things. I mean, the sound that she produced, uh, and also, you know, she was also a brilliant pianist, you know, uh, and I think played um, in, in a different way, or sang in a different way when she was actually at the piano. Um, the, the sound of soul, you know, which is, if you just think about this, she was the queen of soul. What does that actually mean? So, so anyway, but the paradigm shifting, I think is, is, is it really. You know, Um, you mentioned having to dive into so many, you know, just books and articles and things about, about her and obviously back into her music, but was such a legendary artist at the center of the season. How did you approach which parts of her life would be included here? I mean, there's, just so much history with her. I know, to, right, to, Leslie? To dive into. I mean, it's like like a million things. <laughs> she she lived a long and and beautiful uh, life. Um, the title was my guide, you know. Um, like with the United States versus Billie Holiday, I knew what I was going to be focusing on. Genius Aretha is the same kind of thing, you know. Um, Aretha Franklin's genius moments. Where did she change the paradigm? Where, and then where, where did she create things that were long-lasting? What were the elements of that? Like in Muscle Shoals. Um, she goes down to Muscle Shoals, 1967. George Wallace and George Wallace's wife are running the state. Segregation now, segregation forever. 
the, that George Wallace, and she works with uh, white musicians um, to create music that we're still listening to uh, uh, and, and, and loving and has changed the course of what pop music is. Um, so, yeah, the moments like moments like those kept happening. And then little moments like uh, the pizza box moment in episode five where she uh, wants uh, a certain sound on the piano. And I wanted the viewer to know that it was she just didn't just like stand in front of a microphone and sing, you know. She was her ears were so amazing that she wanted a, the piano to have a certain sound. Um, so th big things, little things and anything that that felt like a genius moment we included. Yeah. It, it's such a, a heavily structured series. It moves in several different parallel timelines, and sometimes it's moving forward linear, linearly. Other times it jumps back to fill in the gaps. How naturally and immediately did the structure come to you? And what was the process like of trying to trace out the bits and pieces, both episodically and over a season? Yeah, I, um, as a, one of the things I love in, in writing and creating is, is structure. I love a good game plan. My my father uh, was in the service. He was a tank commander, you know, <laughs> and we were a family who loves a good game plan. Um, but I, I love in my own writing, I, I love structure and I love what structure can unlock in a story. You know, um, I love how structuring something. I, I love classic structure like Shakespeare. You know, I know he's a dead white man, but he's also a great storyteller. Um, and the structure is, is, is brilliant in how it unlocks the, the heart and the, the guts of a story. Um, and also in, in a lot of my work, I do experiment with, with structure and time and things like that. Music um, really moved me to consider playing around with structure. Um, especially these days in our contemporary culture where we can be on two or three screens at once. Different realities can be operating at once. Music is beautiful also because when I hear a song, my mind immediately, I can go right back to the first time I heard it. And so I am in the present moment, but taken back in time to that first time. Uh, I, like I remember the first time I heard Rocksteady, my, aunt, my aunts would bring the 45 over. Uh, after church and teach me how to dance the funky chicken in the living room. Um, so uh, I don't know, I, but so, so, so structure is very important. Sometimes we have to uh, disrupt chronology to get at a deeper truth um, because chronology can lull us into this complacency, you know, when we're seeing a historical, a biopic, you know. So sometimes the disruption of chronology helps us stay engaged on a visceral level, like, whoa, oh man, look at what happened. Oh no, you know, um, all that. I don't know if I answered your question. But, you but, did. Uh, I'm, I'm, also, I'm also kind of curious if there are structural elements that, that Brian and Ron Howard and the Imagine team view as being kind of central to the, the DNA of this as a franchise. Like were there conversations about this is what a genius season structurally looks like sure sure and and again uh, you know i have had a, you know, a lot of respect for the two uh seasons that came before the the idea that um we would show how shy little aretha uh, um, shy little re we would show how shy little re becomes the queen of soul you know that 
idea. That's to show the, if you will, the, the younger years, the, the childhood of the uh, young person and how they then blossom and flower into the genius. That's something that the genius franchise uh, did with Einstein. Uh, it, it did with Picasso as well. And that's something that I was very excited about because I knew that we weren't just doing your basic uh, linear storytelling, um, that we could get at something much deeper with that that structure that they had already established. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, in a, in a larger sense, how involved was Aretha's family with the show? I remember when the casting was announced in, in the before times that there was a quote, um, I believe it was from Aretha's niece, uh, signing off on, on the cast on Cynthia's casting. And at one point, Nat Geo had billed this as the definitive and authorized account of her life. So looking back on the whole experience, how involved was her family? Yeah, well, we worked very closely with the estate, you know, I mean, I've done so many projects, so many biopics, you know, or, you know, um, I did a, a musical about Ray Charles with the producers who did Ray, um, uh, Billy Holiday, of course, uh, you know, anytime I do a biopic, the, the Gershwin's Porgy and Bess on Broadway, um, anytime I've worked uh, with a sort of a, a known entity like the Gershwins or Aretha Franklin, or um, I, I appoint people who are working with the estate, you know. Um, so yeah, her her niece um, uh, Sabrina, I, I believe her name is. I hope I don't. Yeah, I, I could think her name was um, representing the estate and working with the estate was very important to us. And as a Black American woman, I took very seriously, you know. Uh, respecting black American people, you know what I mean? So we came to this project with love, respect, and listening to the estate. And, you know, because the estate, I mean, maybe people don't know, you know, that's what the artist, or, you know, uh, uh, says is going to be their spokesperson upon their death. So it's not, it's not like some weird entity. I mean, I, I mean, I have an estate, the Susan Laurie Parks, I have a, a person who, you know, in a hundred years from now, when I'm passed, you know, that, that will be, the spokesperson for that, that, that person is charged with carrying out my wishes. And so in dealing with Aretha Franklin's estate, we're working with the people that Aretha Franklin has said she'd like to carry out her wishes. Um, very important to me. Very important to me. Yeah. That, that we, that we interact with them on a, a, a loving way to, to get the story right. You know, was there anything that her estate said, this is off limits. I approached the project with love and respect. Um, I know the way, um, you know, popular culture is. A lot of people like that TMZ thing, you know what I mean? You know, that like, we're going to tell you the, the, the dirty nasty about whomever, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a kind of salacious, uh, as my parents would say, tacky uh, way that is, does nothing but simply uh, makes, well, for as a black person, I would say makes us look bad. For no and for no other reason, but just to show put our our mess in the street, you know that's how we say it, so um that was not at all my interest, so I didn't come to it from that um, but to show but also I didn't want to also being a black American woman, I wasn't interested in whitewashing anything. We're all good, we're always happy, we're always smiling, we're always dancing. Nothing is wrong. You know, that's not interesting storytelling either. That doesn't get at the truth of what black life in America is like. It was very important for me to be real, you know, 
um, but also be loving and respectful. And there's a balance. And I, th I think we did show a balance. We show, you know, C.L. Franklin's life. Um, and it's in every biography you read about C.L. Franklin. You know, he was a mountain of a man, a loving father, devoted family man. And also every day with his, his wife wasn't a picnic. You know what I mean? Many days were, a lot of days weren't. Um, he was a, he was the guy who like encouraged Aretha more than, than any person I think in her life. And yet they didn't always get along. Um, so it's always a balance. You don't want to tell any story about someone. You don't want to whitewash it. And yet you don't want to just, you know, show the, I don't know. Does that, does that make, makes, make sense? Um, absolutely. Well, Going off of that, the series paints a picture of, of an Aretha who's very cognizant of how she's perceived differently by white audiences and black audiences. And for at least a little while in the story, this kind of challenges the way that she chooses to present herself. How cognizant are you of the Nat Geo audience? And did that have any impact on how you chose to want to or need to portray Aretha? It didn't impact my storytelling. It might well have impacted the notes I was getting from the higher ups who work at Nat Geo and are aware of the demographics and numbers and, and whatnot. You know what I mean? Just like it's airing on certain nights of the week because um, those nights of the week are, are shown to be nights where people watch TV. You know, they have all these grids and understandings. Um, it wasn't impacting my storytelling. I'm not going to hamstring myself and go, oh, I can't say that because white folks won't get it. Or or I got to say it like this because I don't want white people to think we're angry. I mean, I don't uh, in my work, I don't really uh, I have to tell the truth and I have to tell the truth in a loving and respectful way. My one mantra I kept singing, saying I would go on set and dance around saying it. I would dance around saying it in the writer's room was we serve the queen. We serve the queen. That was my mantra. That was our mantra of the whole show. Um, so we're not serving a viewer that I've never met, you know, you know, so. I, I have to say, I, I had not been personally aware that there was that moment where there was the literal coronation of her as the Queen of Soul. I always just thought that was something someone mentioned in an article at some point, and that was it. Had you known about that before, and how did you decide that was going to be such a key focal point around which to work yeah. the story? Well, I, 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 not before, not before, um, but in my, in my research, I see that photograph, and I'm like, oh, and then you read, it's at the Regal Theater in Chicago. Oh, and there are two, uh, a uh, local district uh, district is um, Rodney Spann and Purvis Jones. That might not be their names. I might get their names wrong. But two awesome, awesome uh, folks. Um, and I, I just thought it would be beautiful to see. Um, it's like it's like being crowned Miss America, but a million times better. But I, I but I wanted the viewer to to experience that that and and it's it helps it helps me set up one of the major relationships in the series, which was the public Aretha and private Aretha, you know? So we're always looking at that. We're looking at this woman who was the queen of soul, who had a private life also, and how, and how she sort of, we really lived in, in, in both of those worlds at the same time. 
you know, in, in a larger sense, you know, this, the show was originally supposed to, de to debut on Memorial Day last year before production was shut down. After I believe you guys wrapped what the first five episodes obviously stalled along with, you know, the rest of the world during the pandemic. And not that that's over, but obviously. Uh, and then you guys resumed again in October after the George Floyd protests. Did anything creatively change during the shutdown that makes this maybe land a little bit differently now? Yeah, good question, Leslie. We were, we were righteous and, I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, we had five, you know, we had episode, like you said, Leslie, we had five episodes already shot in the can. Uh, episode five, as you know, Young, Gifted, and Black, where she, uh, where Aretha is, is, uh, you know, stretching out, find, you know, finding yet another voice, you know. Um, first, she had to find the voice could, that could, you know, make the hits, you know. I mean, first, you know, she was a little girl and she had to find the voice that could stand up in front of the choir. And then she had to find the voice that's going to make the hits after having turntable hits with Columbia Records. Uh, she has to find the voice to give her strength to leave her husband, uh, Ted White. She has to find the voice to support Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, um, you know, and then she has to find a voice to support activists who are a little or maybe a lot left of center, you know, and find a voice to advocate for herself, not only with musicians, but with her producers. Um, so it was a episode five, Young, Gifted and Black is a is a volatile time for Aretha. And we had already filmed that, you know. And I'm proud of this show that we um, that we were uh, embracing that part of Aretha Franklin's personality. I mean, Daniel, you talked about you know, well, you know, knowing that you know the maybe there are going to be more white viewers than than POC than BIPOC viewers. Um, but the 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 intent of the show is to again allow us to embrace this part of an artist's personality. Know that shutting up, you know, to shut up and sing is, is not enough. You have a voice, you know, um, you know, lend it also to the cause of justice um, while also loving all people. It, it, there's, it's not one or the other, it's, um, it's the way she did it. And I think we have a lot to learn from that. So, you know, yeah, we, we were on hiatus. We were in, I came back to New York we every uh, day. That's why I have. Oh, you can't see it. It's my. You can't see it. it's a podcast. <laughs> it's a real audio. But I have my Black Lives Matter um, poster in, in, uh, on my other desk, and we would go down often uh, with our our son who's nine to stand with folks. You know. Yeah, but we, we did it in the show before the shutdown. We were there. Following up on that, you you came back to shoot during the pandemic. You know, in October. After seeing the first couple of episodes, there's a lot of crowd scenes, obviously, when you're, you know, filming concert footage that that equates to a lot of extras. But how did shooting during the pandemic impact what you were able to do creatively? I mean, you know, I think you guys had at least one shutdown because of a positive test result. Um, we've heard other shows like Kaylee Cuoco was on our on the podcast talking about how the flight attendant had to use uh, scenes from with that were shot with extras in the before times and kind of refashion those into other scenes after the pandemic. What, what about you? How did, how did the shutdown and restarting during this, this insane era affect what you guys were able to do shooting wise? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Leslie. It's, uh, it's like nothing I've ever seen. Um, 
we had to we we had crowd scenes that we just had to have you know like uh in episode six amazing grace when they're or episode uh seven when she's in las vegas you know and the pro and it made the days so much longer because we safety first everyday safety first and we had to uh, one one thing we got tested every day everybody got tested every every day you get a nose swab and it was like ah <laughs> but um and then you had to you had to space the, the, the crowd just in terms of crowd you had to space folks out and keep them socially distanced you had to file them in you couldn't just put you know invite people to fill a, a concert hall they had to be filed in you know not touching each other sp spaced out and then you had to file the, another group in to create a crowd you know and that's took a lot of time from our shooting days which means that other things that we planned to shoot, we had to trim. Uh, some of the party scenes that we were just so delighted to be including, um, I had to rewrite to become much more intimate scenes because they weren't safe. Um, at a certain point, we, we could only shoot the, the concert scenes that we absolutely had to. Um, we had a COVID shutdown. We lost several days. And you know, when you're, you know, the schedule for shooting a film or a TV show is so tight, Everything is, you know, yeah, you have that one liner. Everything you're going to shoot on every any given day is already planned, totally pre-planned. When you lose a day or two or three or four or five, in one case we lost, I was charged with cutting the script, cutting five days out of the script, which is a huge amount of stuff. And still the story has to be uh, cohesive, um, which, uh, which I did and it is. And we have a great team. We had a great team of folks to work with. It was everybody constantly brought their A game. We shot at the end, we shot 12 days in a row. We had to show up and film 12 days in a row. No weekends, nothing. You know, 12 hour days, it felt like, you know, 12 days in a row um, to get it done. So it was, it, it was a very intense experience. And I think it just made us all closer. Um, we were so together in, in what we what our task was. The thing that's remarkable to me here is that you'd never done this show running thing before. This was, this was not something that necessarily was one of your skill sets before. And yet here you are being thrown into this ridiculous deep end in this unprecedented situation. How did all the different skills come to you? How, how well did you feel like you got a hand on what you were doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been told by by crew members and cast members and others that that they've that other showrunners would have folded and or at least started screaming, you know, and yelling at everybody. Um, again, I have a I have a strong spiritual life. I have a I have I pray a lot. I ask for help a lot from my from my you know coworkers. Um, there was one time when I called up Brian Grazer and Ron Howard, and I, I sent them an email and said, you guys, I need to talk to you. It was like the Justice League, you know, they showed up, boom, on Zoom, you know. I just said, okay, guys, give me your pro tips, you know. They showed up. Um, when I would ask for help, people would show up. Um, and again, my dad's a tank commander. <laughs> my dad's a tank commander. I mean, um, also, I, 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 I'm a good listener, you know. I'm not ashamed to say I don't know how to do such and such. Please, you, oh, you, you've done it before. Please show me pro tips. You know, please give me, give me advice. Um, um, 
so I, I just kept reaching out, you know, um, and, and treating everybody on the show, whether it was, you know, Cynthia Revo or, or Brian Grazer or the, the most junior PA production assistant on our show with respect and kindness and, uh, just, uh, the, the young, the youngins on the set, the PA, the production assistants would say, oh, SLP, you know, your opportunity is my opportunity. You know, they would run around saying that. Um, and I'd say, well, your opportunity is my opportunity, you know, um, just developing that cohesive, respectful uh, unit. Uh, and then when COVID hit, I remember 13th of March, I got on my knees in the parking lot and cried getting the call and saying, OK, you know, spirit, you're going to have to help us through because I can't do it alone. So there was a lot of that. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about casting Cynthia in particular, because this is such a large role and it asks so much of her. Um, were there any concerns at any point that it would be difficult to find someone who could do this? And was she someone's first choice immediately in the process? Yeah, she had wowed, you know, Brian Grazer, she had, she had wowed them. I mean, we, you know, I, I'd seen her in, uh, uh, the color purple on Broadway. I'd, uh, of course in, in Harriet, um, knew she had a quiet strength, a determination, and of course, a beautiful singing voice, you know, knew she was up for the challenge, um, knew she was ready to embrace the role. And, um, so we were just thrilled that she uh, came on board, and um, it, it was it was such a, a such a big job, um, especially after with the COVID restrictions and stuff. It became an even bigger job, but she was always bringing her A game, you know, every every single day. We really appreciated that. So was she always the the first choice to play Aretha? Did she get the offer? Did you guys look at anyone first, or was it always this is our Aretha? The, she was our Aretha. She was our Aretha. <laughs> and it is, as I said, it's so much singing because a lot of shows and movies would do 30 second snippets of performances. And this, that is not what this does. This is, we're going to sing the whole damn song because you want to listen to Cynthia Erivo sing this whole song. How does that impact your writing when you know that you might write in a script in one word, Aretha sings dot, 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 and that's you know, five minutes of screen time, et cetera. And was there any consideration to a more of a, a snippet approach just in terms of getting more plot in as opposed to, you know, listening to this wonderful singer? Sure. Sing? No, great question, Daniel. I mean, I, I'm a musician, so I work and I work in a musical way, no matter what or right, whether it has music in it or not. Um, I'm very aware of rhythm and, and timing and all that stuff. Um, so I would write around the song in a way. I mean, the story leads, the song helps tell the story and they work together. Um, there's a wonderful, let's see, um, where she's in the studio in episode one and she says um, she wants the horns to sound a certain way and then they start playing and Jerry says, uh, here come the horns, but up, but up, but up, that's scripted. Cause I timed it, I timed it. Or in episode five where she's singing a border song and Jerry's in the booth asking questions about um, Ken Cunningham, and he's having conversations, having conversations, and then we go in and out of the song. That's scripted. Um, I would write, you know, I would dovetail the script with the song. Um, so it, you know, I knew, always knew the songs were just going to elevate uh, the story and help 
and help, you know, forward the plot, if you will, you know, and all those kinds of things. So they only were additive, you know. And, and when it comes to the individual songs, um, you know, there are obviously, you know, huge Aretha hits that we hear, huge songs we hear her sing. But at least in the initial group of episodes, you're kind of avoiding, I would say, the Mount Rushmore of of Aretha songs. You know, you, there isn't the big moment early on where she sings Respect. There isn't the big moment early on where she sings Chain of Fools. How did you choose what songs you were going to use and what you were either going to hold back for later or simply not use because they're, they're maybe too associated with her? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, great question. She does the sing Chain of Fools, though, in the beginning. Just to- does she? Uh, okay. It's, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You're probably wowed by the costumes and the and the, and the amazing <laughs> acting. Yeah, that's I. The, that's the first song we hear. But anyway, but respect is a good question. We couldn't get the rights to all the songs. Huh, okay. You know, so we used every song. We we embraced every song that we could get the rights to, and the songs that we couldn't get the rights to, we couldn't use. Um, and that's just that. There's just so there's just so much of it that it almost didn't cross my mind. Oh my goodness, maybe there were a few things they actually couldn't sing. But okay, so there were there were some things you couldn't get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> which is crazy to me because you have the family's support in making the show. What, what was the issue with some of the the music that you couldn't get? Was it a, is it a record label? Or? Yeah, yeah. The 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 fam. The, yeah, the, the I mean, these uh, entities are are. There's a lot of you know complexity. As far as I know, it's a record label thing, you know, uh, you know, so, um, uh, I mean, m- much like, you know, t- Taylor Swift can't, can't get the rights to her song. You know what I mean? It's not Taylor Swift's fault, you know, it's a record label thing. So, so even back, even with uh, estates and, and people have passed away, there's people who own the rights to the songs that are not uh, individual family members, you know, so. How did you decide the other artists that you wanted to give showcases to? Like someone like Dinah Washington or, or Lena Horne, those are those are big names. People know those. But I think you're going to have a lot of people Googling Sammy Bryant, for example. Uh, how, how did you decide who you wanted to have there and who you didn't? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we wanted I, – I mean, I very much wanted um, people who influenced uh, Aretha Franklin. I mean, certainly we couldn't have all of them. You know what I mean? Um, but um, – for certain reasons, I wanted certain people. So Dinah Washington is someone who would come over to her uh, family's house, you know, so that she was a family friend and the queen of the blues, you know. Um, so the idea that, that there was a there would be a party situation where her father, C.L. Franklin, would host, you know, the who's who of, of, of the entertainment scene, uh, the black entertainment scene of the day. And um, Art Tatum also. Um, so. I chose people for very specific reasons. Um, Dinah Washington, because she was a, knew the family and she would have been at the house. And it gave us an opportunity to have Little Ree in, in this, this call and response moment that, that I, I made up for us to show that as a party might be happening downstairs and a little girl would join in to an adult party, you know, I mean, adults sitting around enjoying each other's company. Um, Art Tatum also I chose very specifically because I wanted people to know that from a very early age, Aretha Franklin was a fine pianist, you know, so, so each of those people uh, had a specific thing to show. Um, Clara Ward I chose because, again, the gospel, she's one of the queens of gospel, someone I'm a huge fan of, and... Um, 
was uh, a friend of the family also. So I, I want, and, and Aretha learned so much from her presentation. Claire Ward was um, always, you know, beautifully dressed and had such a uh, flair and, you know, uh, and as well as a fine, fine singing voice, great stage performance. Um, and people like Sammy Bryant, yeah, people like Sammy Bryant was like, wow, I didn't know about little Sammy Bryant and that she was part of this, you know, this family, this, this, this context in which little Ree's genius flowered. Um, so I'd like to know more about her. So I was, I was definitely one of the people who, who went to, who went to Google on that one. And, and it's just such a great introductory episode for that woman who I think a lot of people aren't going to know at all. Also great piece of casting, which I can't imagine was all that easy. So pretty amazing. You know, in addition to to Genius, you also wrote The United States versus Billie Holiday for Paramount, which rather than debuting in theaters, was sold to Hulu and launched last month. So this has been quite a wild ride for you, I would imagine. So the order was supposed to be Genius first and then Billie Holiday in theaters. And now here here we are kind of doing it backwards. And of course, you just got an, an Oscar nomination uh, for your lead actress in Billie Holiday this week. Congratulations. Yeah, thank but you. But can you talk a little bit about what the past year has been like for you? Because <laughs> it's just, I, I, I'm trying to wrap my mind ar around and to put myself in, in your position. And I, I just am failing miserably because I, I the excitement around uh, around Genius Aretha and then was supposed to segue into, and take you straight into Billie Holiday. And now it's kind of both. And now there's no theaters, there's no red carpet, there's no, you know, you, I mean, you know better than I do. But what was that like? What has this been like for you? I have been working on Genius Aretha every single day for the past two years uh, and doing other stuff, Billie Holiday also, you know, but I've been every single day last weekend uh, in a way was the, the first weekend where I didn't have any phone calls about Genius Aretha. Um, I have learned, I have not learned, I have leaned on the the love and support of my family tremendously. My husband, Christian, is, uh, you know, has, has, has been there for me. My son, uh, Durham, uh, has heard my side of every phone call that I do. Um, and a lot of them have been have been you know heavy, heavy a lot of heavy lifting as we get this show keep the show on track. Um, it hasn't been easy, um, and I've I've learned a lot, and I feel blessed to have you know like you said, Daniel. I I, I haven't showrun before, and yet I feel like I I know that I led us to the finish line. Um, had a great team, um, and and we got there, and also wrote a script that Andrew Day could really sink her teeth in and fly um, as well. So I feel like, yeah, um, working with Cynthia Revo and Andrew Day, um, I I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful and looking forward to just chilling <laughs> a little. <laughs> yeah. You have, as you've mentioned, you've, you've taken these huge swing adaptations, whether it's Zora Neale Hurston or Richard Wright. You, you've taken on these huge iconic figures, whether it's Aretha Franklin, Billie Holiday, Ray Charles. Do you feel a different pressure when you're adapting somebody's work versus when you're adapting somebody's life? <laughs> hmm, that's a good question. I, I, I feel more similarity th than, than difference. I feel like I have to come to it with, uh, like I come to everything, really, a, a high amount of 
uh, respect, but I don't let the respect and my reverence for the character or the novel, like Native Son or Their Eyes Are Watching God, I don't let it get in the way of the truth. Um, I feel that I've been called in a spiritual way because uh, they know, whether it's Richard Wright or Zora Neale Hurston or Aretha Franklin or, you know, Ray Charles, they know that SLP is going to see, is going to deliver. <laughs> you know what I mean? I will, I will deliver. And it was, you know, even through COVID, I will deliver. Um, and I will treat their, their story with respect and love. And I will bring it to the world in a way that is inspiring to people and moving to people and, and tells the truth and, you know, doesn't hold any punches, doesn't sugarcoat or whitewash difficult stuff. Um, tells our story the way it needs to be told to the best of my ability. They know that. Um, I, I feel like at this point, uh, you know, I was a writing student of, of James Baldwin. Um, his photograph is back there um, on my back wall. Um, and I feel uh, since that time uh, in, in 1983, when um, he encouraged me to write uh, dramatic literature, that I, uh, he was, he was telling me that I had a feeling for it to be inhabited, to allow myself to be possessed by the big spirits. And, um, yeah, so. And, and getting to put your stamp on, on some of these iconic books and iconic lives, are, are there books or lives that either someone else adapted that you really, really had wanted to do or that you just haven't gotten around to yet that sort of is your, your great white whale, as it were? Oh, <laughs> I love Moby Dick, by the way. Um, but, um, no, my, you know, I, I've written a novel, Getting Mother's Body, that I would actually like to adapt. That would be a fun thing to do. Um, and I hope that the writer, Susan Laurie Parks, feels served by by the dramatist, <laughs> Susan Laurie Parks. Um, <laughs> you know, we'll have to see. Um, uh there's nothing. No, I'm. I'm not looking, thinking. Oh, gee, I'm. I'm so longing to, to, uh, to do that. I. I really am grateful for the opportunity to, to walk with these great icons or these great iconic works, and to bring them into a dramatic context to open them up to a, a, a large group of viewers. I. I really feel grateful. I, I like that you are your great white whale. That's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Well, and we always like to end these interviews with the same question. What are you watching and enjoying? Well, the other night on, uh, on I think it's called Movie, Movie we watched um, a, a short film about uh, James Baldwin in Paris. And, you know, I, I just to see my, you know, James Baldwin's smile and his ferocity, you know, g gave me great joy. Um, so that's, that's the last thing I watched a couple of nights ago. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Susan Laurie. We appreciate it. You, all, you guys are right. great. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Leslie. Thank, thank you. That was great. Genius Aretha airs over four straight nights starting March 21st on Nat Geo. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Lots of new stuff to choose from this week, Dan. Marvel returns to Disney Plus with Falcon and the Winter Soldier. You just heard our interview with the genius Aretha showrunner. So you've got that season to talk about, Dan. Apple debuts Calls. HBO uh, launches docuseries Q Into the Storm. And Dan, one of your favorite actresses, Kat McPhee, is back with a new series on Netflix in Country Comfort. Dan, what you got? 
really is a lot of options. Uh, last week, if you'll recall, there was nothing to review in Critics Corner because everything was either embargoed or didn't exist. This week, tons of stuff. So let's, of course, start with the most important thing, by which you clearly mean Netflix's Country Car- Comfort starring I Kat would expect McBee. nothing less from you, Dan. Cat McPhee, Cat McPhee, Cat McPhee. Um, and so with that in mind and with the well-established love I have for my favorite American Idol contestant of all time, allow me to just say that I made it through three episodes of Country Comfort and that was all I could make it through. Um, and they offered and, you how many episodes? Yeah, the full season was uh, was available, uh, albeit embargoed for day of premiere. Uh, so take it as you will. Um, the premise of the show is, for no good reason, a aspiring country musician ends up at a horse farm and they think she's going to be their nanny and she just broke up with her boyfriend and so she becomes their nanny. Uh, but she doesn't know how to become a nanny. So they're going to teach her. She's going to teach them. Anyway, the <laughs> the second joke in the pilot is a hilarious joke about bestiality. And it doesn't really get any better from there. Um, basically, it is half hacky multicam comedy and half mawkish multicam drama. And the best way I can put it is it's trying to do a lot of the same things as The Ranch did on Netflix, and lots of people like to make fun of The Ranch, it is not nearly as good as The Ranch. It is a significant decline in quality on every level from The Ranch. And I'm not just saying that because The Ranch has a bunch of established sitcom stars plus Deborah freaking Winger and Sam freaking Elliott. So you're automatically going to be better there. The Ranch, whatever you think about it, is an extremely professionally made multicam. It is about as good-looking a multicam as exists. Not necessarily the highest of bars, because people don't think of multicams as being particularly visually nuanced, but they tried things. This is an ugly, flat, broad show. And in the place of Sam Elliott and uh, and Deborah Winger, you have a miscast Cat McPhee... Uh, not really sure what she's playing, though she sings wonderfully. She's singing constantly in all of the episodes. So if you like her singing, she's doing basically a, a country covers album episode to episode. And then you have Eddie Cibrian, who is constantly employed. That's about all I can say about him. <laughs> I, I so don't... how much does it pain you that that this is that that it, you can't it, it, that that, it, that you can't get behind a Cat McPhee show? It's disappointing. That's all. That's all there is to it. It's. it's and did just you watch every episode of Scorpion? I did watch every episode of Scorpion. So again, let let that be let that be the other. And we piece both of watched all of Smash. Definitely watched all of Smash. No yeah. question at all. And and you know, with I don't want to say full pleasure throughout, but not guilt. You know, there was enough good stuff happening at Smash at all times that that the horrible stuff that was happening at Smash was somehow less offensive. There there just is not nearly enough compensating value in this show. It is it is so broad, and you know just really just doesn't work. Anyway, so no yeah. one really cared so, about it. So what you really need is for <laughs> Alan Seppenwall to tweet the the smash McPhee. He'll do photo, it re- right? he'll do it regardless of whether I want that or not. It's bound to come up um and yeah, uh, look, this is not the worst comedy or the worst show Netflix has ever done, but three episodes was all I could do. Uh, People, realistically, are going to be much more excited about uh, Disney Plus's The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and people will actually probably watch that. Um, And so far, critics have only been sent one episode out of six. And 
this feels more notable on this one than it did with WandaVision, where we did get three episodes, but they were also very episodic episodes. The first episode of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, it feels like the first chapter of, God forbid, a, a six-hour movie. And, you know, it, it hurts us to say it, but it, it doesn't feel like an episodic chapter. The two main characters, uh, played again by Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan, Everybody has talked about how this is going to become a a buddy thriller, you know, an, an action dramedy at some point. The first episode, the two main characters don't come together at all. So it's not the show it's going to become, which makes it tough to review. I, I really liked the show around uh, Sam Wilson, around the Falcon. I think that Anthony Mackie is, is good. And I think that there are some things that it's going after that are interesting. You might have already seen critics on your on your feed talking about how one of the pivotal scenes in the pilot involves a, a home loan and a scene in a bank. I thought that was fascinating. And it does begin with a really good Falcon action scene. Again, I saw some people on Twitter, critics saying that they thought the action scene that started the episode was boring. I thought it was a lot of fun. What'd you think of the first action scene? I mean, it was a 10 minute action scene that felt straight out of a Marvel movie. And I feel bad for any TV producer who needs to, to write an action sequence having to compete with this from going forward. It's, I mean, it's, it's a big budget movie action sequence yes, in a TV I, show. I think, I think that is for sure the case. Like, I think, I think probably you could find more creative um, expressions of action that one could do, but in terms of scope, it feels big. Um, the stuff with, Sebastian Stan with The Winter Soldier, I described it in my review as feeling like a Netflix show, a Netflix Marvel show, which at this point for Marvel has become a bad word. And I don't know that anyone's going to take it as a compliment. But basically what I mean is that he's the kind of hero that Jessica Jones was, that uh, that Matt Murdock is in Daredevil and, you know, kind of kind of mopey. And you can understand why, because he spent decade upon decade killing people for the bad guys, which is not a thing that's going to make you feel good. Plus his, you know, best friend, whatever. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how those two characters intersect, but the, the kind of bottom line on it is there's a lot of promise here. I like the Falcon stuff and really big action scene to open. So anyone who felt like the action in WandaVision was lacking is definitely going to feel like that's a satisfying return on the Marvel front. And we'll be joined next week by Falcon and Winter Soldier head writer Malcolm Spellman for a showrunner spotlight interview. Lots of good stuff in that one, Dan. Yes, it's a good chat. And so from a show that is a gigantic blockbuster movie on a screen to Apple's Calls, which is a podcast with a screensaver on the screen. It, it's a very odd show. It's from Fede Alvarez, who directed the remake of Evil Dead and Don't Breathe. And the premise is the show is basically nine initially unconnected, eventually connected phone conversations where you're just hearing the phone conversations. And what's on the screen is squiggly lines, sound waves, abstract representations. And you know what this is? It's a radio play. It's a narrative podcast that Apple probably spent an amount of money that, you know, that our friend Emily Vanderwerf, who does the Arden podcast, she could probably do 75 million seasons of Arden for the amount that, <laughs> that was spent on calls. And it's not unentertaining because the 
things that are happening in the podcast that's being put on the screen are are weird. Uh, you know, there there are there are horrible things happening to people's bodies and and mysterious things happening in time. But does it make any use whatsoever of television as a as a medium? No, it does not at all. Uh, it's yeah, it it's kind of a, a two hour and twenty minute podcast that has squiggles, and you can find better podcasts out there. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a thing. Anyway, let's go back to things of more interest. You just heard our interview with Susan Laurie Parks talking about Genius Aretha. And the first thing I have to say right off the top is I glanced at my notes. Chain of Fools is the first damn song in the uh, in the entire show. And, and when I asked why it wasn't there, that was just me getting confused on stuff. Respect, definitely not there. Chain of Fools, first song in the show. Anyway, <laughs> so basically my review of this one is there's some fantastic mu music in this. And Cynthia Revo is just a total pleasure to watch and listen to. And and ultimately, you're not watching this, I don't think, for anything else. You're you're watching this to watch a a manifestly talented singer do great songs and the occasional nifty cameos from artists from the 50s and 60s and 70s. And that's that's what this is there for. As a telling of Aretha Franklin's life um, and as a genius entry, I, I don't know if it's quite as solid as I thought that Einstein was, but it's also significantly better than Picasso was. So there you go, kind of right in the middle, and the music is is phenomenal. So there's that. And... Last but not least on this week's Critics Corner would be Q Into the Storm, which premieres on HBO on Sunday. And it's a kind of uncomfortable and disheartening and generally mad look at the QAnon conspiracy, but also at image board sites like 4chan and 8chan and the ostensible absolute First Amendment right that they promise and freedom of speech and what absolute freedom of speech looks like. And absolute freedom of speech looks somewhat like the QAnon conspiracy, and it looks somewhat like what happened on January 6th in Washington. And the approach that the director, uh, Cullen Hoback, takes is it's a it's a prickly one because at times he is also a freedom of speech absolutist. And so he's giving a lot of screen time to a lot of people who have spent the past 12 months, if nothing else, talking about vaccine conspiracies, talking about COVID conspiracies, just spinning out wild election fraud lies. And he's just like putting them up on the screen. And that's that's just what it is. And either you're going to watch those people and go, my God, this is this is really too much crazy for me. Or you're going to think, hmm, they're being given time to say these things. So that's a problem. Um, it is. It's a lot of things. It is somewhat a piece of comic prankster journalism. It emerges in the last few episodes as a bit of a thriller because you know what's coming as well. It's also a mystery. There, There is definitely some attempt to figure out who the mysterious Q is. And the elements don't really all add up. I, I, the way I rationalized it in my review is this is a crazy and messy enough topic that this is a pretty good representation of how you'd tell the story of that topic. Uh, but 
a lot of people aren't going to like the unevenness. They aren't going to like the messiness. And I don't think those people are wrong. You're either just going to jump in and go, okay, I'm committed to whatever detours this takes. And I'll be surprised when I'm surprised. I'll like people when I like them. I'll hate them most of the time. And you'll go with the journey. Or you'll be so annoyed by so much of it within the first hour that you'll check out. And you know that's that's somewhat convenient. It's, it's good to it's good to know early on that you're uh, <laughs> that you're disgusted with everyone on the screen and that you don't want any part of them. I, I found it often enough fascinating and often enough pro- uh, provocative over six episodes that I was down with it. So that is a lot of TV to consider, and I hope I have at least saved you a few minutes watching Country Comfort. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing because it does help spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to hear from you on Twitter. Come say hi. Questions, comments, concerns. And, you know, we've already praised you for how well you did with your questions for the mailbag this week. Lots of good ones. Definitely good ones for the future. But you can always send us more at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. <laughs>